Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. It's Wednesday, March 10th. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, Amelia Brock pointed out to me this morning that yesterday, the documentary filmmaker, podcaster, and journalist King Williams tweeted out uh, this message, quote, there are no boring news weeks in Georgia. And I think uh, all of us who uh, follow politics here in the state, whether we're journalists, political scientists, or political consultants, various people involved in the political world here, and those of you who listen to the show would certainly agree with that. The big news, of course, has been the proposed election bills, which continue to stir up enormous controversy down at the state capitol. Um, we're going to talk about them again, but, but I want to make a comment about all that. Uh, because I think it's important to say something. I've gotten a few notes from some of you who have said to me, why are you spending so much time talking about these election bills? There's other things going on down at the Capitol, and yet all of the conversation has been about the election bills. I, I think I sort of relate to that frustration, but here's my answer uh, to that. Yes, there are other measures. We will take up some of them, and we have. But the fact of the matter is, here in Georgia and across the country, there are major efforts to change the composition of the electorate as we head into the 2022 elections. And the reality of it is that if those efforts prevail and the electorate does change dramatically, that will have an impact on virtually everything else that legislatures in the years ahead Take up, And so it will continue to be a major focus of our conversations on the show. And I think many of you get that. But, but I do think those of you who have been a little frustrated, I understand. And um, I, I hope you'll bear with me because this is just, there's, there are very few issues, I think, that are as important as changes in voting laws in this state and across the country. Um, Today is also a day that the U.S. House will have a final passage of the COVID relief bill. They're beginning to meet right now as we do the show live at 9 o'clock. And by the time the 2 o'clock show comes on the air, they will have passed that measure, mostly along a party-line vote, and sent it on to the president for signing. Uh, Governor Kemp continues to have uh, problems with the bill. He's spoken out publicly about that. And I want to ask our panel why uh, the governor's uh, concerned about it when it's such a popular bill. He certainly will have his reasons. The U.S. House today also could vote on a, uh, a gun uh, bill that Lucy McBath has been promoting for a long time, which would require universal background checks for all gun buyers. So we've got all of that uh, to talk about today with a wonderful panel, starting with my Wednesday partner on the show, Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How's the book coming, Greg? Oh, it's coming. The first section has been already reviewed by the editor, and so I'm halfway through the second section right now. So it's been a trip. But you're right about, uh, or what King Williams said was right, that every week brings a whole new set of dramas in Georgia. A lot of people were asking me, like, oh, is your is your job, you know, winded down? Has it been a lot more, uh, less stressful <laughs> since the election? And it certainly is not as, not as much to cover in terms of campaigns, but certainly a lot of 
other things to cover the Georgia Capitol. Yeah, been a bit busy time period, even after the elections. We're also joined today by the CEO of DeKalb County, Michael Thurmond, who um, we love having on the show. Michael has had a long career in public service going all the way back to his days as a state representative, a young man out in Athens, Georgia, continuing with his um, work as labor commissioner, his race for the uh, U.S. Senate in 2010. He served as school superintendent in DeKalb County. And as I said, he's now out in DeKalb as CEO. How are you, Michael? Good morning. I'm great, Bill. Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for being here. We're joined by uh, Dr. Karen Owen, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. Karen told us right before the show went on the air, you're in the middle of grading midterm exams. That sounds like such fun. Yes, this is the midpoint of the semester, so all exams are coming in, and this is a great break, so thank you for inviting me to join the panel. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Um, I you give me flashbacks to the reason I quit school. I just couldn't handle all that pressure in college. I finally just said, forget about it. I'll become a political journalist. <laughs> Leo Smith is here today, too. Leo, of course, is a longtime Republican consultant, an activist in the state party for years and continues doing his work for Republicans. He's also the president of Engaged, the Engaged Futures Group, which is an organization that tries to build community around disparate uh, individuals and organizations. How are you doing, Leo? Building, building, bridging, bridging. There's lots of discord. I guess that's for sure. Um, Let let me start uh, uh, very quickly. Uh, Greg Bluestein, I said, we're going to talk about the election bills. We have to. where do we stand? And I want to get Mike Thurman in here very quickly. He just sent me a note saying he's got to deal with an emergency. So we're going to let him go. But before we turn to him to talk to him about the history uh, of voter suppression, I want to ask you, where do we stand on most of these bills? The Jolt had an interesting item this morning saying that that big package of bills that the, the omnibus bill that the Senate passed out, which included no ending no excuse absentee ballots, lost a number of senators, including, by the way, the lieutenant governor who walked out of the chamber, but then four senators who didn't show up either. So it's even the, the no excuse absentee ballot is continues to be very controversial, Greg. Yeah, it lost just enough senators to still pass with a bare majority of 29 votes. Uh, it was one of the stranger events that's ever happened to me at the Capitol. I got a text to come down to the lieutenant governor's office and I found him um, what, leaning back, watching the debate proceedings uh, uh, from an office rather than from the floor, he told me he couldn't preside over debate over a measure that he does not believe in. Um, and you know, that just shows the extent of the divide. And three of those four Republican senators who were excused for the debate are from very competitive metro and suburban areas. So that is one of the measures that is that passed through, that crossed over. Uh, about a dozen um, pieces of elections-related legislation overall are still pending. But, of course, that doesn't mean that um, that lawmakers can't tack on other things that didn't make it um, through either of the chambers before. The crossover day is a very arbitrary deadline. Uh, and the biggest provisions are severely limiting who can cast ballots by, by mail-in ballots, um, who can um, uh, uniformity, and Republican sponsors say, uniformity over weekend voting that would basically um, uh, curtail weekend voting 
for some of the larger counties that offer more weekend voting days um, and restricting the window in which you can apply for absentee ballots um, and, and register to vote. And so those are a few of the big, bigger takeaways. But these packages will all change, I think, dramatically over the next few weeks as lawmakers start to hash out some sort of measure that can pass both chambers. Because I'll remind you that Lieutenant Governor Duncan and other Republican leaders, despite the fact that the no excuse absentee ballot provision passed in the state Senate, there's very there's still very big concerns among Republican leaders about that getting to Governor Kemp's desk. So it doesn't say it might it uh, might still make it, but there's a lot of consternation over there. Um, so that we can continue talking about uh, what's happening currently at the legislature. But Michael Thurman, now that we know that you're going to have a, sh- a limited amount of time with us, you connected with me the other day. We, we know that first and foremost, or I know, you consider yourself a historian. You've spent an enormous amount of time looking at the history of Georgia. You've written books about the history of Georgia. You're working on a book about uh, Oglethorpe, who uh, was an abolitionist uh, uh, when he became the head of the Georgia colony. You uh, connected with me to point out that one of the most egregious examples in our state history of efforts to suppress or eliminate the black vote came during the gubernatorial campaign of 1906. And before you do have to leave, I'd really love for you to explain that to us, and, and we can talk about it a little. Uh, thanks, Bill. And I'm sorry I have to drop off, but I'm here uh, in Athens. I'm dealing with a, one of my family members who's here. But uh, uh, 1906, of course, uh, was, I think, one of the most uh, uh, contentious, racially charged elections uh, in, in the history of the state of Georgia, it pitted uh, Hope Smith against Clark Howell uh, for the Democratic nomination uh, for governor, which in effect was the nomination for governor. This is how you got elected. We were one-party state then. And the key issue in that campaign uh, was an effort of these Hope Smith as well as Clark Howell campaign on disenfranchising black voters. Uh, this began in 1896. Uh, when that was an effort to pass literacy tests and other violence and intimidation to eliminate black voting rights that had been granted during the Reconstruction era. Uh, 1906 arrived, and uh, Hope Smith uh, distinguished himself in a very negative way by being one of the most preeminent race baiters in Georgia politics. Uh, He campaigned on eliminating the black vote to protect, to protect, uh, the, uh, the democratic process from fraud. Uh, he believed that black voters, just by nature of the fact that they were participating, uh, were in fact uh, were contaminating the vote. And so the major concern that he raised was in order to protect the vote, to eliminate fraud, we needed to eliminate black people from voting. Uh, he was ultimately elected and then uh, with the support of the Georgia General Assembly passed a uh, constitutional amendment that was put to the voters that was ultimately uh, received a majority vote of white voters in Georgia and the few remaining black voters. And thus, uh, blacks were eliminated effectively from Georgia politics in terms of the voting process. The last black Reconstruction legislator, W.H. Rogers from McIntosh County, uh, had to escape from Atlanta out of the capital in disguise in order to protect his life. And Blacks were eliminated from the electoral process in Georgia to the mid-1960s due to that effort. And even worse, uh, Hope Smith, 
is credited in a very sad way for fueling the racial tension that led to the 1906 race riots in Atlanta. Um, Michael, the uh, the constitutional amendment that uh, Hoke Smith uh, supported during his campaign and, and then passed uh, essentially established um, specific uh, uh, provisions, including a literacy test, but whites, because a percentage of white voters were uh, illiterate, it excluded whites from having to pass the literacy test. But the literacy test was so stringent that, of course, it essentially prevented many, m- most blacks from voting. Is, is that a fair way to describe what happened? Absolutely. And there were some whites who opposed it because they knew that the threat or the potential was there to also eliminate poor whites or illiterate whites uh, from voting. But, you know, passed this prologue. And the most interesting parallel in great political reporters like my friend Greg Bluestein and others would do well to parallel what we are seeing now in this whole, uh, I think, uh, uh, kabuki theater around the potential of fraud. That was the driving force behind the effort to pass the constitutional amendment to eliminate uh, blacks from the voting process in Georgia. And as you hear the rhetoric now under the gold dome, it continues to be the driving uh, uh, impetus for the passage of this pact, uh, at least the introduction of many of these bills because of the potential of fraud. It's chilling Michael, uh, when you consider the, cor- the correlation. I, I, I know you've got to go, and I'm very sorry to hear you have a family emergency, but if, if I may, just one very quick last question, because I want to make sure um, as we turn to the panel to talk, obviously 1907, was in many ways a very different time. And clearly, um, the most, uh, probably uh, the clearest reason for stopping blacks from voting was uh, out-and-out virulent racism. Um, Do do you, I mean, while we know racism exists uh, to this day across the country and in Georgia, is it fair to say that today the work that's being done by Republicans, you, you may not suggest that it's still the kind of racist impulse as much as it is an attempt to dilute the black vote just to, in terms of who content, continues in power. Is that a fair question? Well, I'm not one older years who, you know, easily uh, 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 disseminates charges of, of race and racism on people who I don't know. And I don't know all the men and women who introduced bills uh, in the Georgia General Assembly. However, what we should all be careful of, and I'm quite frankly, I don't know Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, but I'm, I really appreciate the fact that he is standing up and pushing back as well as the speaker against at least one, if not more, of these bills. It sends a very negative message. And in that message, it's easily for anyone to interpret, uh, not just that I'm trying to reset the game so that I can win, then people can interpret it to mean just what you see. You know, I don't know the people, so I can't say whether they're racist or not. I would never do that. But the implication, it opens up the door and raises troubling questions about motives uh, in 2021. All right. Um, 
Michael Thurman, uh, thank you thank for you. setting up a, a, a conversation again. We're terribly sorry you're dealing with a family no, issue right you. now. I hope everything goes well. Um, we'll have you again back on the show soon. Thank uh, please, you, Michael. and I apologize because I really want to no, be no, part no. of this conversation. But you got Leo, you got some great, you got my professor, and you got the best <laughs> political reporter in the game. So y'all enjoy the rest of the show. <laughs> thank you, Michael. All right. Thank um, you. Let let, let's keep let, let's keep going. I, I, Karen, you're the uh, professor. You're the political science professor, and I, I want to try to. I, I don't think I asked that final question of Michael in the in you know clearest way possible. Um, we know about the blatant, virulent, violent racism that was existing in in Georgia back in at the turn of the twentieth century. Um, it's, my only point with him was. What's happening now is as much about power as it is about blatant racism. What I'm trying to say is I don't, we don't want to try to convolute a, a, you know, comparing some of the overt racism back then to what's happening today, or should we keep that uh, open? Well, I think we have to be aware of our history of the state. And just to give a little context, so, you know, he's talking about efforts here in Georgia in 1906. In 1890, in Mississippi, that's where we really start to see a lot of the disenfranchising efforts come about when Mississippi changed its constitution, and then other southern states really started to pay attention to that and institute the poll taxes and literacy tests. So that is part of southern history that we cannot forget, and it has a lasting impact. I think you're right. Today's incidences is really what politics is about. It's the shifting of power. Who has power in playing? We are in a polarized, divided society. And what we see is really that correlation of partisan politics with racial politics. They come together and it's hard to divorce that and separate it out. And so, you know, you know, Michael made the statement that you don't want to make the implications that actions are happening because of a particular thing. But I think every legislator has a constituency that they're speaking to and talking to. And so the narrative is always what drives my voters to get back out to vote for me and how am I representing them? I think that is a really, thank you, you know, bailing me out of my clumsy way of trying to deal with this. Leo, Amelia just sent me uh, an interesting note. She said, what Mike Thurman just said reminds me of something James Baldwin uh, said, and now she paraphrases what he said. Is the school district racist? I don't know, but I know the books they give my children to read and the state of our schools. Do the labor leaders hate black people? I don't know, but I know I can't be in their uh, unions. So are these people and institutions, election reforms, racist? Does that matter if their policies are keeping black people from voting is the question Amelia asked. Well, many, uh, this is one of the difficult things about this time we find ourselves in, times that we've been in before. Um, I wonder if in 1907, many of the political consultants felt the same way some political consultants feel today, that this is just electioneering. I remember when John Watson said, I'm agnostic about values. I mean, not John Watson. Um, yeah, John Watson, of Georgia, former Georgia chairman of the party said, I'm agnostic, I'm atheist about politics, I'm an intellectionary, that there's this emotional disconnect from sometimes from some consultants and strategists from just winning. Uh, the ethics that the professor has to teach in school seems to be separated um, often from people in their practice of politics, where they'll say, well, I'm not blocking black voters, 
I'm blocking Democrat voters, and that's my job. And, and they, they disconnect that from racism. And I saw that. I reviewed a movie last night called Boy State. We've heard about how they make these future politicians in, uh, in Boy State. And one of the guys said, you know, we're more divided than we ever have been. And this is a documentary, right? So this is real life. We're more divided than we ever have been, a 17-year-old said. Um, you know, I guess we were divided in the 1800s. Maybe, but because that's that slavery thing, but I don't know, maybe. You know, it's sort of like this disconnect from, like, whether or not racism has any real thing to do with morality. Greg, um, I'll I'll add one layer to this. I I got another note yesterday from a listener. Uh, Heath Garrett, a Republican consultant, was on the show yesterday, and uh, he made the point that that, that Southern uh, uh, members of Congress— uh, Democrats in Congress had worked to enfranchise black people back in the 1960s. And um, I'm not quite sure where that came from, because we know Senator Richard Russell was the author of the Southern Manifesto, which was precisely or geared toward blocking every civil rights measure that came before the United States Senate in the 60s. So we have a history of trying of, in this state of white political leaders who have uh, worked to suppress uh, black people's rights. We do, and, and, and they might be re- referring to, there was a push by Republicans in the 60s who were deeply in the minority in, pol- in political power uh, to enfranchise more African-American voters in hopes that they created, uh, could create some sort of coalition um, uh, to, to power Republicans in the South. but. Certainly, Georgia has a long history of Democratic ruling um, lawmakers who imposed all sorts of barriers to voting for African-Americans and other minorities um, to cast their ballots. And, you know, we we get some pushback at the AJC and I'm sure other media outlets do, too, for calling them restrictions. But what else do you call them when they're, you know, weeks after more than a million people cast their ballots by mail uh, to, to fuel Democratic sweeps of the U.S. Senate contest and the flip in November, um, that now there's efforts to severely limit who can vote by mail. It is what it is, which is a restriction. Um, all right. Let's bring this back to the present um, and and put history aside for uh, the time being. And I'll tell you what we'll do. We've got a lot still to talk about on the show. Why don't we get our first break out of the way and come back and continue with our panel on Political Rewind? <laughs> Welcome back to Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, Leo Smith, Professor Karen Owen are with us. Uh, Karen, let me uh, start with you on this. By the way, I mentioned Bluestein's book, but I, I f- should have said you're working on a section of a book right now, too. Uh, yes, well, I just had one published with Charles Bullock on special elections, and then uh, I've worked on a chapter for a new book coming out on presidential swing states, looking at why Georgia is a battleground state or a competitive state. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to make sure that I give you a, a, a shout out for the work you're doing in, in the publishing world as well. So, um, Karen, let's talk about the power aspect of what Republicans are doing in the legislature with these election bills. They, they appear to believe that they will reset the, an electorate that will be more likely to uh, vote Republican in the 2022 cycle and beyond 
But uh, the law of unintended consequences, which we've talked about on this show, could also, in fact, give a lot of fodder to uh, people like Stacey Abrams and Democratic activists who will use what's happening there to really push Democrats, Democratic voters to the polls, too. Yeah, so I think in each party, it's about turning out your voters. Like You have to message to your voters your base and ensure that they're voting. So the Republicans obviously are aligning measures that they think their voters will want to hear and feel confident about and thus will help them. Of course, that does have what you say, the implications for the other side to use a messaging to target their voters to make sure that they're turning out to vote. And I think the play here, you know, it's very complicated. We each party runs their narrative, whether it's voter suppression or whether it's election integrity and confidence, they're going to run that type of messaging. And it's all to the voters. And I think the General Assembly has to be careful because they're passing things now at a time by the end of the year where we'll be looking at redistricting. And what implications do we have going into redistricting as well as all the discussion even at the national level on voting rights and re-implementing some type of Voting Rights Act. All this is playing out in a very large context of our parties nationally and at the state level. Leo, uh, Greg pointed out uh, at the beginning of the show that there were members of the Senate who are in swing districts who chose to be absent during uh, the omnibus vote yesterday, uh, probably especially because of this uh, uh, measure that would end no-excuse absentee balloting. So that's about as clear a symbol as you need of of how controversial these measures could be in terms of what happens in election campaigns in 2022. No, no doubt. I mean, we've seen how Chuck Estration, for instance, uh, just a very trending district. He's kind of played politics on both sides sometimes. Um, and you're going to see a lot more of that with the smell that's coming out uh, related to these voting rights bills. You know, last night I had a call, a special call, with, with several soulful, feeling Republicans who are all Black American leaders. And they were actually trying to suggest that they wanted to come out heavy with a strong civil rights, pro-voting rights kind of message as black Republicans. And these are hardcore black Republicans. And I just sat there and went, this is so confusing. I mean, and basically they were saying our party is lacking soul. That's a bigger issue than whether or not we win um, and that we can trick our way into winning rather than using influence and messaging that really kind of broadens our universal appeal for democracy. These are black Republicans who are old school who are like, I can't agree with it. I have to push back. We've got a big problem in the Republican Party. Greg? Uh, and Leo's right. Republicans are divided over <clears throat> over this legislation, even, even, even though 29 senators voted for it in the Georgia Senate. Um, and there is a private undercurrent from some lawmakers who just say that they hope that when it gets to Governor Kemp, because there's a, there's a lot of consensus-driven legis- uh, provisions that are moving through the uh, through the, the, through the legislature this year. There's a lot of there's a lot of issues that both parties can agree on, including tabulating absentee ballots, including um, making some changes um, to make uh, the ballot drop boxes more secure, th- things like that. That that um, that lawmakers from both parties can agree upon. Um, but when you have the headline of restricting mail-in votes, when you have the headline of curtailing weekend voting, and especially souls to the polls on Sundays, um, it just it just tempers that whole debate. 
All right, Greg, as long as the ball's in your court, let me change topics and uh, let's talk for a few minutes about the COVID relief bill, which is uh, going to be, which right now the uh, U.S. House is uh, debating. They had passed it, as people probably remember. It went to the Senate where uh, some changes were made, and so now it's back to the House for final passage. There's very little reason to believe it won't pass by almost completely along party line. Democrats will support the measure. Um, Greg, here, but here's the aspect of it that I, I want to talk about in terms of Georgia, if I could start with you on this. Governor Kemp has been outspoken as recently as I think it was this past weekend, he was on, or late last week, was on Fox News. Neil Cavuto interviewed him. And, and the governor's been outspoken about his opposition to the package as it stood uh, a few days ago and as it basically stands now. Let's listen to what he told Cavuto. We've been sounding the alarm down here, and a lot of other governors have as well, about this package that it's going to benefit New Yorkers and Californians um, disproportionately more than hardworking Georgians. Unlike what President Trump did, where he treated all the states equitably, uh, this bill treats the cities across the country equitably, but then punishes states that have low unemployment uh, rates because they've been winning economically. So, Greg, here, here's the thing. Um, when the uh, president signs this bill into law, the state of Georgia and cities in the state will get literally billions of dollars in relief. Uh, individuals who make $75,000 or less will get $1,400 checks. Couples will get double uh, that amount. There will be a $300 a week unemployment boost through September 6th. There will be an increase in the child tax credit to $3,600 a year for kids under six. 3000 for kids between 6 and 16. There's funding for uh, schools, vaccine rollouts. So there's a lot in this measure that people are going to really be glad they're going to be the recipients of. I'm not quite sure uh, I understand why Governor Kemp has decided to continue being so outspoken on this. Yeah, and Georgia would get about $8 billion, $8.2 billion in direct aid, the state and cities. Um, of that, it's about $4.7 billion to the state and its agencies. Um, so Georgia's getting about $5 billion in direct aid. Um, I think the strategy from governor and about two dozen other Republican governors who've, who've echoed the same sort of argument is that um, they feel that their states were shortchanged by this formula that the that the stimulus relief plan builds in, and that formula um, relies on unemployment figures from late last year. And states like Georgia that have more robust economies, and in Governor Kemp's view, states like Georgia that aggressively reopen their economies, while states like California, New York, the quote unquote blue state bailout states, um, that didn't uh, end up getting shortchanged because those 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 bigger states with less robust economies get a bigger share of the of of the package. Now what Democrats will say is that hey these Republicans weren't voting for it any not a single Republican in the Senate or the House have voted for this for other reasons too. They've they've mentioned waste and and it's too grandiose. It, it expands the federal debt. Overall now we're talking 5.5 trillion dollars has been spent throughout the last year or so on containing the pandemic. That's more money in 2020 dollars than was spent in World War II. 
by the federal government. Um, so that's the sort of overall Republican argument. Um, and Democrats say it's just it's just um, th this this focus on the formula is just a pretext for opposition. Leo. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the, the governor took advantage of a good opportunity. I mean, to, to make a critique of the formula is to say that, one, I'm fighting for my state, which is his job. He should always fight for his state. And then, two, he's pointing out that he was right on several economic measures, that he was on the strong side. As he makes the complaint, he's pointing out how advantageous uh, his decisions on how he handled COVID made us strong when it, when it came to COVID response and unemployment. So that makes sense to me, Karen. Um, and in fact, Governor Kemp is getting some well-deserved credit, I think, uh, because he was able to reopen the state to some extent. He was criticized uh, broadly when he did that initially. Um, but um, over the course of the last six months, particularly, uh, even though he's reopened a lot of businesses, he has continued to impress upon people the importance of wearing masks, social distancing. He is no Greg Abbott in Texas just saying we're all open for business. So it, it, so from a political point of view, uh, it, it, this seems to make uh, sense in a way I hadn't thought about it until Leo and Greg brought it up, Karen. Right, and he's definitely playing the balancing act of keeping the economy moving and people able to work as well as trying to protect public health and keep the citizens safe. You know, I was thinking that uh, if we look at the latest, I think, Wall Street Journal headline over the last few days, it was about states had increases in tax revenues. They weren't decreasing, so states were actually able to manage pretty well through the pandemic so I think part of this is the messaging that's coming out of COVID relief. What are these billions of dollars going to the state and local governments really aimed to help them with if tax revenues didn't dip too tremendously? And I think that's part of, like, what do Americans need, these direct payments and unemployment supplement to get them back out in the economy? Or is it to help get schools reopened and vaccines? All of those pieces need to be discussed. And when you have a big omnibus piece of legislation, that messaging gets watered down and it gets confusing, I think, for a lot of people. And I would also say Governor Kemp has to be mindful of the fact that he is open. Other states weren't. And if you look in Metro Atlanta, a lot of people are moving here and have moved here over the last nine months to a year because we were open, schools were open. You could look at Colorado and see the same place where people left California and moved so that their kids go back to school. So there's a lot of things I think he's working with um, in this time. So, uh, Greg, before we leave uh, Governor Kemp, one of the other questions that Neil Cavuto asked him what had to do with uh, Donald Trump. Let's listen. Donald Trump is the 24 nominee for Republicans. Would you support him? Absolutely. I'm going to support the nominee. Republicans, we need to have a big tent. I mean, there's a lot of great ideas out there. We're not always going to get along. Uh, but I, I think the president deserves a lot of credit, and he's not going away. Greg? Well, remember, this is a president who has called for the governor to resign, who said he's ashamed to have supported him, who said he's a rhino, and who's he's promised to uh, back a primary challenger against. And it shows that it ain't a two-way two street because Governor Kemp can't afford to uh, to return that heat on, on President Trump. He, President Trump remains one of the most popular figures in, in the Republican Party in Georgia. And Kemp knows he is walking a very fine line through 2022. Yes, but Leo, he did, I suppose you could say he was careful. He said, if Donald Trump, if 
Donald Trump is the nominee, of course he'll support him. We would expect any Republican to say basically, of course I'll support whomever the nominee of my party is for president in 2024. Absolutely. We, we, heard, um, we, we heard Mitch McConnell throw shade at Trump on uh, at the end of the hearings and then at the same time said if. That if word is going to be very popular with Republicans. The hope is is that he'll get so bogged down in criminal court cases and civil actions that, you know, he'll lose his luster. So I would think that any politician, if we look back at 2015, probably had similar conversations, right? They weren't coming out on any particular Republican they were supporting. And then all of a sudden, when Trump had the nomination for the GOP, they backed him at that point, even though they probably didn't love that he was the nominee. But he did change the Republican Party. And I think going in 2024, it'll be very similar. I would imagine even if Trump does announce, there will be others who jump into that Republican field. And it will play out in every governor, U.S. senator. They will have to be careful about playing to the we are going to support our party's nominee. Okay, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. Karen Owen said a few minutes ago that when you have a big, big omnibus uh, package like the COVID relief bill, there's an awful lot of things that are part of it that you don't focus on specifically. I want to read to you all just a couple of lines from a Washington Post article this morning, which I was really uh, surprised to see, and maybe some of you were as well. And it's particularly interesting uh, in terms of the fact that David Scott is now the chair of the House Agriculture Committee, and Raphael Warnock has been appointed to the Senate Ag Committee. Here's what the Washington Post reported. A little-known element of President Biden's massive stimulus relief package would pay billions of dollars to disadvantaged farmers, benefiting black farmers in a way that some experts say no legislation has since the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Black farmers in America have lost more than 12 million acres of farmland over the past century, mostly since the 1950s, a result of what agriculture experts and advocates for black farmers say is a combination of systemic racism, biased government policy, and social and business practices that have denied African Americans equitable access uh, to the markets. Uh, Greg, so this is one of those parts of the bill that I suspect Republicans seize upon and say, none of this has to do with real, uh, you know, the most targeted kind of COVID relief. And yet it shows what a broad and sweeping measure this really is and how it might be of benefit to Georgia farmers. Yeah. And two things about this stuck out. One is Senator Warnock, who's on the Agriculture Committee, um, had a direct role in this. He, He said in a press conference a few weeks ago that he lobbied the agriculture secretary uh, directly um, to, to include this provision in this bill, which, which again, experts say is 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 the most um, sweeping help for minority farmer, farmers is since the civil rights movement. Um, Republican pushback has been, there's been some pushback on this, but it's been interesting. Congressman Austin Scott from, from rural Georgia um, said that he doesn't necessarily oppose the, the aid it's that it should also be extended to female farmers too. There's a shrinking pool of black-owned farms throughout the country, and there's a shrinking own uh, pool of female-owned farms um, throughout the country. And um, he says that that this could help black-owned farms as well as female-owned farms. So 
Um, it's a very uh, it, it, it's, it's a very interesting provision in a bill that could could literally change the agriculture sector in Georgia. Leo? Yeah, yeah I think that this is also tied into a movement afoot, and that is a reexamination of what does it mean to emerge um, a black uplift and empowerment, a restitution for past wrongs into our lexicon and to our discussion about reparations, but not reparations from the sense of how some people argue for it, but by just increasing economic mobility. And there's a huge movement of uh, young people in their 30s, gone to Harvard, gone to Yale, but find out, oh, I own 200 acres in South Carolina, in, in Georgia, and I started a, a farmers, a black farmers club on Clubhouse, the audio, social audio piece. It's active with young Harvard educated folks going, I have property. I want to learn how to farm. These are black American people who are seeing it as a new industry to re-enter into. Karen? I think that's an interesting point because I think this legislation, some of the pieces of it have begun with Cory Booker out of New Jersey. And, you know, yeah. his push a lot on kind of the climate aspect of farming along with he is a vegan. So that's a piece of kind of this new mode, which may be appealing to a lot of educated um, people who are coming back to farm to do sustainable farming in a different way. I also think, you know, from a political scientist, I see the value here in representation and that being descriptive representation and substantive representation. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have Raphael Warnock and these other um, black leaders who are now able to fully represent these black farmers substantively with policy in the legislature, in Congress. And that matters. We should have that conversation about why it matters that those diverse voices are at the table working on behalf of more citizens. And even if, you know, Austin Scott's bringing up females, I get a point to have when you have female legislators, they can bring these issues to the forefront as well. Um, really interesting uh, to watch how this unfolds. And, Leo, uh, um, yes, it was Cory Booker who started this going, another African-American in the United States Senate, and now Georgia has two African-Americans who are advocating uh, for farmers. That in and of itself uh, is um, uh, kind of an important moment in our uh, history moving forward, Leo. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's really an amazing time. And, you know, for me, as an agenda Republican, uh, I don't see how we can not we can disagree with this idea of adding an economic force to our state and, you know, really pouring more resources into it. So certainly more Republicans will quietly, if not openly, support uh, the farmers as they get this access. Greg, let's move on to another subject. I said at the beginning of the show, it's possible, we don't know for a fact, but it's possible that the U.S. House today will take up this uh, bill that would require universal background checks for all firearms. We, we know that Lucy McBath uh, first decided to run for Congress uh, in reaction to the fact that her 17-year-old son, Jordan Davis, back in 2012 was shot and killed in Jacksonville, Florida, in a horrifying incident in which the shooter was angry about the, the, the volume that, of the music that Jordan Davis was playing uh, in his car. So this is an issue that has great personal resonance for Lucy McBath. But since he was first elected until now, there's been very, very little movement in terms of actual legislation in the House. And now with Democrats in control of both bodies, they feel the time is right to move on this. 
Yeah, um, and polling shows uh, broad support both in Georgia and nationally for these measures. Um, but they're going to face stiff opposition. There's probably going to be overwhelming opposition among Republicans in the House. It still could pass that chamber, of course, because Democrats control it. Um, but the Senate faces a much a much deeper challenge because of the filibuster rules and 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 requirements that you you essentially need 60 votes to pass any sort of meaningful legislation. So that needs 10 Republicans are needed to cross over, which is not very likely to happen. Um, but for, for Congresswoman McBath, um, she hopes this is just the beginning of a broader debate. She wants to limit the use of stand your ground laws, which were used um, at least at first to justify the killing of, of her son, the murder of her son. Um, and she wants other restrictions on assault-style weapons and, um, and, and to roll back um, to, to, to add more, when she says, gun safety measures um, to restrict gun rights. So, um, uh, Karen, uh, this is going to raise for many, many Democrats, many liberals, the question of whether it's time to look at the filibuster in the U.S. Senate. Um, Joe Manchin, surprisingly, has sort of retreated a little bit from what we believed was his very strong opposition to any effort to overturn the filibuster. He's now saying it ought to be painful for a minority party to be able to filibuster. What do you make of that? Are we heading toward the end of the filibuster in the Senate? So I think it's going to be an interesting debate about what his meaning and that painful piece is and then where he's willing to kind of work with Democrats. Does that mean that there's certain substantive areas that can be off the you know, off the table for a filibuster, but they allow it for certain things, kind of like they did with judicial nominations? And if you do it, then remember, you're playing short-term politics for your advantage to gain passage of legislation that can have long-term ramifications because eventually the Democrats can be back in the minority party and they want to be able to use a filibuster when they need it. So I think it will be carefully calculated. And the gun control measure, you know, Greg mentioned that you'll have to have 10 Republicans to overcome the filibuster if it were to happen. But I think carefully here we'll have to pay attention to probably two prominent Democrats. One is Manchin and the other is probably John Tester out of Montana. And I think both of them will be careful in this gun control, gun rights, what is acceptable, where they can move on this piece of legislation. Um, we'll watch it develop. Greg, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, back in uh, the news, both The Hill and then CNN ran stories about the fact that she has decided to use a variety of delaying tactics to slow down the House's efforts to um, get any uh, legislation, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, passed, um, she, uh, on her own, has uh, started to alienate uh, a number of members of, the, of her own caucus, her own conference in the House, according to The Hill. They're kind of tired of the fact that she keeps trying to slow things down through a, very, a, a variety of procedural uh, initiatives, Yes. Yeah, I mean, she's taken a pretty much a scorched earth strategy um, after she was demoted um, from those committees a few weeks ago in that in that extraordinary kind of unprecedented uh, vote by by the full house. Um, and yeah, now she is um, exacting her own revenge. And there are some conservatives who really like what she's doing, um, and there are many others who do not. But basically, what she's pushing to do is force a full reading and a full vote on 
on even non-controversial legislation like co co commending um, public service workers for for heroic acts, things like that 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 you know usually are kind of rote votes. She wants full readings of those. And the other day. Uh, there was about a dozen bills, and in the pandemic era, it's not some simple process. Full reading and full votes on these non-controversial bills could take hours. One estimate was six hours of votes, which would ground action in the U.S. House to a halt. So there are other Republicans who are saying, hey, if we wanted to get anything done here, um, lay off. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, not surprisingly, Leo, uh, the, uh, the Hill quoted uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene as saying, um, essentially, and I'm not quoting her directly at all, but saying that's their problem. I'm going to keep fighting for the right uh, 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 causes in the House, Leo. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we've got a problem. Marjorie Taylor Greene is there for herself. She's there to be a disruptor. She fully embraced that. Um, and that's just what she's going to do. She's not there to legislate or to build democracy She's there to ride this, um, you know, this, this, this sensationalism campaign that she has for stardom. And that's what it's about. And, you know, it's a, it's a sad thing, but I think she'll have a primary opponent coming up and uh, I'd be happy to support them. <laughs> you know, Karen, one of the things that's bigger than certainly just a Marjorie Taylor Greene is that as a number of, uh, of journalists have pointed out, She's kind of part of a new wave of young members of Congress who seem to be more interested in messaging than in legislating. They're more about uh, communications than they are about getting bills passed, um, which seems to be the perfect uh, 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 sort of uh, development coming out of the Trump Twitter era. Oh, yes. We are definitely seeing a change in legislative norms where when you went up to Congress as a freshman, you stayed quiet. You sometimes never spoke during committee. You might ask one question during a committee hearing and you might produce one piece of legislation where you got some co-sponsors. And now it's a different game. It is much more of what can I say to my voters? How do I message on topics? How do I kind of let them know I'm here representing them all the time doing some type of work, even if you're really representing more in messaging than in legislation or in actual Greg, policy work. Oh, I apologize for interrupting you. Greg, final word from you on that. Yeah, and a lot of sound and fury, getting a lot of attention. Who would have thought that Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene would be kind of on first name basis with, with a lot of voters uh, after her <laughs> kind of come from nowhere victory in northwest Georgia? It's true. Greg Lustein, you get the final word on today's edition of Political Rewind. Thank you, Greg, for being here. Leo Smith, a pleasure to have you with us and Professor Karen Owen and you as well. We're also grateful that Michael Thurman joined us at the top, top of the show, and we're certainly hoping that everything is okay at home in Athens with his family. We're out of time for today. We're back again tomorrow. Buddy Darden will be among the panelists on the show tomorrow, and I know all of you out there are always glad when Buddy is with us. Uh, so he'll be here tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and wear a mask. See you all tomorrow.